Hello everyone and welcome to your place for all things weird, interesting, mystical, and otherworldly. Today we're going to be talking about the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. I don't even have a bad joke for this. No. I was no. going to say, I wonder what the, what the joke's going to be. The snare drum and the cymbal. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't have anything. I don't have one for this one. Yep. When, when rich kids go camping. How about that? <laughs> that's, that, that's actually pretty good, man. That's good. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I'm Tonya. And I'm Chris. Welcome to The Triangulum. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome back, everyone, to episode three <clears throat> of the, the second season. Yeah. Um, yeah, so today's going to be an interesting story, I think. Yeah, it is, actually. Mm. I, I didn't know about this until you told me about this story. Really? I never heard of it. Never. Well, I've heard of it. I just didn't know very much about it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know anything about it. Mm. Well, I just want to point out that part of the reason why, for those of you who've been with us since this first season, you know that the original intro, I would say paranormal, supernatural, metaphysical, and conspiratorial. However, I felt that that was very limiting. Mm-hmm. And stories like this, which I think are interesting, just didn't seem to fit in any of those types of categories. I mean, maybe conspiratorial, but who knows, right? Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to change the intro to weird, <coughs> weird, weird <clears throat> interesting, um, mystical, and otherworldly to try to encompass more topics and more stories so that we can bring you you know, a wider variety of things that we think are interesting. Yeah. So yeah. that's why that changed. If yeah. any of you wondered, maybe you didn't, but there you have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for that very reason, Michael Clark Rockefeller. Yes. Yes. What yeah. do you know? Oh, I told you. I don't know anything. I, I've never heard of the story until you, you started telling me about it. Now, you- other than he's a Rockefeller. Okay. You know, one of the wealthier families in the world. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, for those of you who don't know, the Rockefeller family is an American industrial, political, and banking family Mm -hmm. that owns one of the world's largest fortunes. Their fortune was made mostly in the American petroleum industry during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Right. Originally from Germany, the family moved to the Americas in the early 18th century. By the late 70s, the family was considered one of the most powerful families in American history. Hmm. Yeah. So most of those conspiracy theories about you know who owns the world, Rockefellers are in there. Yeah, they're they're one. They're they're in the list. Definitely. Yeah. So who then is Michael Rockefeller? Mm-hmm. Well, Michael Clark Rockefeller was born May eighteenth, nineteen thirty eight, to Nelson Rockefeller and Mary Clark. Okay. Nelson Rockefeller was a businessman and p- politician. He actually served as the forty first U.S. Vice President from December 1974 to January 1977. Hmm. He was also at the time the governor of New York and for a while the assistant secretary of state for American Republic Affairs. Right. So a lot of governmental... Yeah, a lot of power yeah. this guy had. Well, just, not just the money, but politics, right? Yeah, connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, let's not forget, of course, he's the grandson of the billionaire John D. Rockefeller. Yeah. So... Michael's mother, Mary Todd Hunter Clark, was the daughter of Elizabeth Williams and Percy Clark. Percy Clark was an attorney. Elizabeth was the granddaughter of the former president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Said like from Monopoly? Yeah. <laughs> I think the guy was George Roberts. She was a 
granddaughter of George Roberts or something wow. like that. Uh, again, yeah, Pennsylvania. Money. Yeah, Pennsylvania that's, Railroad. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> Old money. Exactly. Nelson and Mary had five children, including Michael, and weirdly enough, Michael had a twin sister. Hmm. So okay. he was a twin. He's born into this incredibly wealthy family with obvious connections to, well. Pretty much everything. Yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah, he begins his education career at the Buckley School in Manhattan, a private school for boys. He finishes out his high school career at the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, where he was a student senator and varsity wrestler. And then following his graduation from high school, he attended Harvard University, earning a BA in history and economics. Hmm. Smart guy. Yeah, he seemed to be. Academically, anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, academically. Yeah. I mean, even though... They got money. He's still pretty active in what's going on in his schools. Yeah. It appeared for a time that he was going to follow what most wealthy kids at the time would be doing. So go to private schools, go to elite universities, and then for all intents and purposes, probably join politics or take up some of the family business. That seemed to be the trajectory of his life. Or at least that's probably the trajectory that was planned for him. Yeah, exactly. Did he even have a say? Mm -hmm. After he graduated from Harvard... He went on to serve as a private in the U.S. Army for approximately six months. Okay. Now, I didn't find whether he just did that to, I don't know, like you got to do it, so get it out of your way kind of thing. Yeah, or yeah. He was like, you suck, you got to go. I didn't, I didn't see anything with respect to that. Just that he served and that was it. Yeah. Uh, following this, he landed the opportunity to participate in an expedition to the Western Netherlands, New Guinea, to study the Danny tribe. Okay. This was with Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology. Mm. Michael definitely had interest in native art and in archaeology. What he didn't have, though, was the experience for this type of expedition. Right. He doesn't have the experience, but he's interested. Yes. So enter the family name. Yeah. Michael gets the opportunity to go because he has to pay his own way, and it is later said that the Rockefellers paid most of the expedition's costs. If you're the leader of the expedition and the guy says, look, I want you to take my son, I'll pay for it. Yeah, of course. You're going to be like, "Okay, hey, welcome aboard, Mike. Yep, get your camera, (laughs) get your gear, let's go. So glad we could have you on this trip. Exactly. So initially, the Dutch, because it's Western Netherlands, New Guinea, so the Dutch occupied that island for the longest time. Initially, the Dutch were not fond of the idea of an expedition because they didn't want people poking around in there. It wouldn't have been good PR because they weren't really doing a lot of good stuff there. Yeah. Well, they were trying to civilize the tribe's people. Yeah. But we all know how that goes. How that went. It doesn't go well usually when other people try to civilize native peoples in their native land. No. (laughs) Yeah. No. But... Nelson Rockefeller called some bigwigs in Washington and Amsterdam, and then, of course, the expedition was a go. Yeah. Because of his connections, right? Yeah. Netherlands, New Guinea refers to the Papua region of Indonesia, once the overseas territory of the Kingdom of Netherlands from 1949 to 1962. Containing Indonesia's two easternmost provinces, it is now known as Papua and West Papua. Mm-hmm. Michael goes on the expedition in the spring of 1961 and participates in the making of the film Dead Birds as the sound recordist and the expedition's still photographer. The Danny people lived in the Balium, I think that's how you say it, Balium? Maybe it's Balium. Balium Valley in the mountainous interior of the western end of the island. Okay. Michael's job on the expedition was to basically hold the microphone. 
<laughs> they don't want them to fuck up anything, so no. they're like, you can hold the microphone. While the other members of the team recorded film of the indigenous peoples. And one of the other members of the expedition, Peter Matheson, had said of Michael, he simply wasn't doing the job. He got some sound and what he got was okay. It just wasn't enough. He was off photographing when he should have been recording. Right. He wasn't... He wasn't into it. Well... He's into his own thing. Yeah. The thing is, is that the photographs he took were very good, and he proved to be quite adept at photography. Yeah. So he's taking photographs, but they need him to record sound. That's great. You're good at photography. It sucks that you're not, you know, <laughs> you're not holding the, the microphone when here. you should be holding yeah. the microphone. <laughs> Problem is, is he's pissing off the members of the expedition, and they confronted him uh, for his shitty sound recordings. Yeah. According to Matheson, Michael left in tears but returned the next morning with a renewed, focused, more mature, and more conscientious. That's a quote from Matheson. Yeah. So I guess they really ran him through the ringer for not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Because he's rich. Yeah. These people do this their whole lives. This is their job. They this have is to their produce. livelihood. Yeah. He doesn't give a shit about results. Yeah. Yeah, at least not at that point. I am nothing. Yeah, at least not at that point. While on the expedition to study the Danny tribe, Michael and his college friend Samuel Putnam, also participating in the expedition, leave the group for three weeks in June and July to travel to the coast to explore the possibility of collecting as Matt works of art. The main base for them was a small village in Amananamke. I think <laughs> I think I said that right. I'm not sure, but from M <laughs> from. Amana, Jesus, Amananamke? No, Amanamke? I don't know, something like that. Amanamke. Let's go with that. All right. Michael and Samuel travel by canoe to other villages in the region with Dr. Adrian Gerbrands and Renee Wassing. Now, Renee Wassing is going to come up later in the story. Yeah. The Asmat inhabit the island's southwestern coast bordering the Arafura Sea, and the land is a mixture of mangrove, tidal swamps, freshwater swamps, and lowland rainforest. It's pretty rough. It's rough, very rough. Very rough terrain. A lot yeah. of deadly things living in this yeah, area. Some dead jungle, man. It's yeah, well, deadly, just like deadly jungle. Poisonous, yeah, yeah. poisonous snakes, crocodiles, bugs. sharks. Yeah. yeah, anything that you can think of, it probably lives there. Yeah. The term Asmat refers to both the region and the people who inhabit it. The Asmat are the most well-known woodcarvers in the Pacific, making their art a sought-after commodity by collectors all over the world. Yeah. So now you know why they were interested yeah. in it. The Asmat rely heavily on their natural environment for survival. They live mainly on starch from the saigo palm, grubs, which is just, I can't do it. Crustaceans, fish, and forest game. Yeah. The fact that they eat grubs is just Fuck. tripping me out. What's the starch? It's a starch from the tree, I guess. Uh, fucking grubs. I know. Yeah, I don't know. Nope. We talked about eating bugs before. Yep, I wouldn't make it. Uh, if I had to eat bugs, I'd die. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's <laughs> the fish, okay. You know, fish. Yeah, I could, stuff, yeah I could work my way through that. But grubs, yeah. not. They're, they're just too gross. Just Bugs. Well, they're like bugs, juicy looking and fat and ugh. <laughs> ugh. Nah. Yeah. Anyway. No, thank you. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. So these asthmat people, they also live mostly in tree houses, as the land floods pretty much daily. Yeah. So their homes are built sometimes as high as twenty-five meters up. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. It is kind of cool. Like a whole village of tree houses. Yeah. yeah. Because the the tides are that crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's insane, eh? The art that Michael was hoping to collect consists of elaborate stylized wood carvings. 
Some of the most recognizable pieces are the beach poles, I think I'm saying that right, which are carved to honor their ancestors. Mm-hmm. The Azmat believe they themselves are descended from trees, and their mythology tells the story of a great muji- uh, mis- try again. magician <laughs> who tired of wandering their uninhabited land alone. He carved a human figure out of uh, mangrove wood, and then using a drum, he brought the figures to life, and then so began the azmat. Mm. Mangrove wood is used for homes, it's used for canoes, and it's used for the beach poles, and the beach poles being the most important part, obviously, yeah. because that's for, the, that's for the ancestors. Oops. Yeah. Because the azmat don't believe in natural death, They, so they don't believe natural death exists. Only evil spirits and enemies account for your death. So if you die, even if it's natural causes, an enemy caused it or an evil spirit. Or an evil spirit. Yeah. The, the carvings that they make to honor ancestors are basically a pledge that they will get revenge on your behalf. For their death. Mm-hmm. Oh. So they carve one for you, and then when they get revenge, they can, they can let it go. Yeah. Michael wrote in his journal... He had, a, he had some journal entries. I found the journals online, and I read pretty much every entry that he had from these short trips because there wasn't very many trips, and he took a lot of pictures, a lot of good pictures, actually. They were good. Mm-hmm. Like his pictures were, yeah. You're talking National Geographic, it was... Yeah, pretty good. Was, I mean, it was the really, 60s, really right? Yeah, they were so, good. This is what Michael wrote. The key to my fascination with the Azmat is the wood carving. The sculptures which the people here produce is some of the most extraordinary work in the primitive world. Hmm. Michael's friend Samuel had said that Michael had a very serious purpose. Michael had hoped that by collecting the primitive art, he could promote a better understanding of their culture and perhaps preserve part of their culture before it was gone forever. Yeah. His concern was evidenced in his journal entry from June 29, 1961. On the following morning, it took us three hours to reach Omadesep. How marvelous the approach was as we glided over the water abreast the four canoes that had come to welcome us. The river opened up, revealing the large village that lined both sides of the river. Yet, then how discouraging to find that the large wooden building on the east bank was a school. The class was in session, and the monotonous chant of the Roman alphabet greeted our approach. Imagine... He's you're expect- in New Guinea, <laughs> in the wild, and you're like, wow, yeah, look at this. Look at these tribes here. Like, most of them hardly even wore clothes, right? Yeah, he's look at all these tribes Tarzan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like 90% of the time they're naked. Yeah. And then you come around, basically, you come around the corner, and boom, there's a bunch of kids in a school, school. quote unquote, yeah. learning the alphabet <laughs> and chanting it out. <laughs> like, you can't <laughs> escape Westernism anywhere. Oh, A, B, C, yeah. D, and he's hearing that out in the yeah. middle of Can you the imagine? beginning. Yeah. Oh, my God. He goes on in uh. his thoughts. Then the first of the bartering for carved objects began, and I experienced that feeling of disappointment, almost disgust. The objects were brought to the Azmat house where we were to stay. One after the other showed the effects of hasty craftsmanship stimulated by the white man's knives and curio interest. <laughs> So he's noticing that the craftsmanship is suffering because they're just carving shit to sell to white people to barter. That's yeah, it. It's gonna, not. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have that energy about it anymore. That no, meaning behind no, it anymore. It's no. almost becoming like a mass-produced object. No, it's lost its soul. Mm-hmm. We can see that the effects of Western <clears throat> interest in their art. Michael is seeing it for the first time in the in the first three weeks of his uh, his journey into the Azmat. 
So this has already been happening before he even got there. Hmm. Maybe he had, you know, a false belief that it was going to be far more primitive than he thought. And it's still pretty primitive, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. But perhaps he didn't think that there would be this kind of encroachment by Western influence. Shirts and pants, basically. yeah. During the three-week time, he and his companions visited many villages in the region, including Otsjanep. The people of Oaks-Janep would later be accused, sorry, would later be the accused cannibals when Michael goes missing. Yeah. So Michael writes in his journal about their journey to Oaks-Janep on June 30th, 1961. He says, It was a marvelous paddle upstream to the Ferrets River. A large number of dugout canoes from Omadesep loaded with warriors accompanied us using the occasion of our trip and the protection it provided to negotiate a peace treaty with Otsjanep, the much feared powerful enemy and traditional rival. So they know that there's tribes in these areas who are in conflict with each other. And they took this opportunity to make a peace treaty. Yeah, even that far out in the middle of nowhere, they're fighting. Uh, yeah, people are always fighting. What else is new? He wrote in another journal entry shortly after that about their approach and how they were they had to wait to see if they would be welcomed to the village mm-hmm. and all this other business but he, he said the last shots he took were of the Omadesep canoes leaving for home before darkness fell now this is wild and somehow more remote country than what I have ever seen before mm-hmm. the Omadesep people brought him and the other people he was expeditioning with so Gerbrands and Wassing because they're going to barter for art and they leave them in Otsjanep. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is kind of weird, and we're going to come back to that later. So on July 10th, they were on their way back to rejoin the Peabody expedition, so the people filming the film. Right. And he wrote in his journal then, The <coughs> Azmat is filled with a kind of tragedy, for many of the villages have reached that point where they are beginning to doubt the worth of their own culture and crave things Western. There is everywhere a depressing respect for the white man's shirt and pants, no matter how tattered and dirty, even though these doubtful symbols of another world seem to hide a proud form and replace a far finer, if less concealing, form of dress. So what he's saying is they want Western clothes, even though he thinks that their traditional garbs are far nicer, even yeah. though they don't cover as much, but it's, yeah. it's, it's much more noble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yet much more ominous is the economic and spiritual future of the Azmat. The West thinks in terms of bringing advance and opportunity to such a place. In actuality, we bring a cultural bankruptcy, which will last for many years, and what is more, poverty. Poverty, after all, is a relative thing. Mm. The Azmat is a land of great winding rivers, tropical forests, and mud. Literally nothing else. The people have for centuries lived on little besides the pulp of the sago palm and fish. There are no minerals, not a single cash crop will grow successfully. Nonetheless, the Azmat, like every other corner of the world, is being sucked into a world economy and a world culture which insists on economic plenty in the Western sense as a primary ideal. That's crazy. So he sounds like he doesn't really like the fact that the West, the West is infringing is on this. It on everything it's there. his first experience, I believe, in this area. Hmm. Perhaps even, you know, to any area such as this. And he's seeing that the West is slowly drawing it in. Yeah. Yeah. You can even see though it. even though there isn't really much there. Yeah, no, there's not. But the allure of like Western things yeah. is somehow it's it's 
got its claws it's got its, into yeah. the traditionalism that is usually held to a higher regard, yeah. and it seems to be waning. It's a good writer too. Like yeah. that's just from his journal, right? Yeah. Yeah, his pictures and his writing. He's a good. Was a good writer, man. Yeah. Well, it seems from his journal entries that Michael is quite taken with the culture he was observing and disappointed in the fact that this primitive beauty is being lost to Western influence. Mm-hmm. In early September, the expedition returned to the United States, Michael included, even though some reports suggest he did not at the time. So I did read in some places that Michael did not return to the States in September with the rest of the members of the Peabody expedition. And then I read that he did. Yeah. I only saw one source that said that he didn't. So I don't think that's, I don't think that's accurate. He came I think back. he came back. Yeah, same here. It was for a very short amount of time. Yeah, but, but he, he, come he back. came back. While home, his father informs him that he and his mother are getting a divorce. Mm. This news is said to be, for Michael, devastating. So going back to New Guinea for him was a new no-brainer. Yeah. He's yeah. like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. I need to clear my, my head, whatever. Yeah. The news is big, right? And sometimes you try to avoid the things that uh, upset you the most. Yeah. That's true. Michael returned to New Guinea in late September to barter for more art and collect the art that he had already bartered for. Despite being a rich kid out of his element, it should be noted that some have stated it would be incredibly inaccurate to paint Michael as a crass art collector, bent on stoking his hall at the expense of decorum or proper respectful behavior. Hmm. Michael was genuinely interested in the people's and their art for preservation. Yeah. So he wasn't in there like, I'm rich and I'm going to get everything and I'm going to sell it and I'm going to get richer. Yeah, he, he was, was collecting stuff for a museum. Very respectful. He was, he was really... Very much so. Yeah, he was really, really good. He really loved it. Seemed like it. Yeah, when you the see pictures of him there. interacting with like the children it, and stuff. That's what I'm going by. The he looks really genuine. Yeah, he, he really did love it. Like the like, one where he's showing the kid his watch. Yeah, because the kid had never seen a watch. He was just so enthralled, like enthralled with the whole thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Then comes the fateful day, November seventeenth, nineteen sixty-one. He and Rene Wassing were to take a trip across the mouth of the Alandin River en route to pick up art he had already bartered for. Right. The trip was, uh, it was going to be taken on a 30-foot long catamaran, which was basically constructed by lashing two canoes together. It had uh, like a bamboo deck house and then it had a tin roof, but yeah, it's, it's two canoes. Yeah, tied together. <laughs> yeah. uh, the catamaran was powered by a single 18-horsepower outboard motor, mm. and that type of vessel was fine for maneuvering around in the twisting rivers of New Guinea, but it was definitely not suitable for traveling along the coast. Yeah. Where the Alandin River meets the Arafura Sea, the collision of these two bodies of water results in massive waves that can reach as high as 20 feet. <laughs> because you got that massive river coming out into the into the yeah. sea and the sea crashing in. It's it's, it's treacherous. It's big. It's very a big treacherous, wave, man. The Alandin River, sometimes called by its native name the Betts River, is now known, sorry, as the Palau River. So okay. if you look it up on a map, you'll be able to see it's called the Palau River. That used to be the Alandin or the Betts River that the native people referred to it as. Right. So you can see how wide the mouth of that river is as it intersects with the era. Uh, Arafura Sea. Yeah. It's big. Yeah, it's big. Michael wrote about them leaving Otsjenep and heading to Biwar, which is northwest. And this is kind of interesting because it's the first time that he, I think, is participating in a crossing of this mouth of the river. Right. Which, when they tried to do it again later, explains why he would do it. 
because he, I think he felt confident that they could do it. It's always easier, you know, the whole thing when you're going somewhere you've never been before. It seems like it takes forever. Mm-hmm. But then when you're coming back and going the second time, it's faster because it's just familiar. Yeah, so he writes, The tide was high and the weather calm, so the Amanam... Mm, here we go with that word again. Amanamnanki, <laughs> I think, paddlers chose to go to Biwar by the sea route as opposed through the winding rivers. It was a shorter route and the paddlers kept close to the tree-lined shore so as to avoid the dangerous Arafura Sea swells. Mm-hmm. He writes, Strong monsoon winds sometimes sweep the heavy swell from the Arafura Sea far into the estuary, making the crossing a rather hazardous undertaking in an asthmat dugout canoe, which is not a seagoing craft because it lacks anything like a forecastle to break the waves. Though there was kind of a swell when we arrived at the estuary, our asthmat paddlers, after having measured the sky and waves with expert eyes, decided that the crossing could be made. We reached the other bank without much difficulty. So he's done this crossing. Yeah. It's this crossing, it's during this crossing that he goes missing. Yeah. Having crossed the mouth of the river before in a canoe, perhaps he felt that the catamaran with an engine would make the crossing much more easy, I'm thinking. He probably figures, okay, it's got a motor. Yeah. Maybe it's a little easier. Yeah, for sure. And maybe it could have. However, there are reports that people had tried to dissuade Michael from making the trip, including one individual refusing to sell him gasoline in hopes he would abandon the crossing. American anthropologist David Ede, or Ide, I think, I'm not sure, I think it's Ide, had said, I had the impression that Michael was awfully used to having his way and not taking advice from anyone. (laughs) Which which sounds like a rich kid thing. Yeah, yeah, it does. Another person... A Dutch trader, Verhee van Wick, who refused to sell him gas, said he thought Michael had a need to prove himself. Mm-hmm. So perhaps he doesn't want to take advice from anyone, but also he's like, I think, 22 or 23 at the time. Mm-hmm. And he's collecting art for a museum, and maybe he does want to prove himself. I think he did. I think he did. Especially after he got, you know, rang through the, the ringer about his... His skills as a, as a recorder. Well, just not taking the expedition seriously. And he's got this renewed focus and this renewed conscientiousness. Perhaps yeah. he's like, I, I can't fail. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that for sure, but yeah. maybe, right? Yeah. It was reported that a Dutch police officer had seen Michael's catamaran sitting low in the water at Agates, which is, or Agats, which is a, an area where they, there's like some Dutch civilization there, so yeah. to speak. It's kind of like a yeah. small community. The officer said it looked overloaded with trading goods. The officer made Michael offload much of the cargo, and when the officer was satisfied that the catamaran was safe for travel, he left. And then it's reported that Michael just loaded all the shit back in. <laughs> <laughs> and then took off. I love it. Okay, he's going to get it back on again. Well, you know that's what people are going to do. <laughs> exactly. Where are you going to leave it? You know that's what people yeah, are going to do. It's true. Where are you going to On the beach? Mm-hmm. I don't think there's like a locker area you can put all your trading goods in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or a cargo, yeah. a warehouse yeah. where you can store it. I don't think that's an option. First month free. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they leave in their over overloaded catamaran with two native guides, Simon and Leo. Okay. Simon and Leo tell Michael and Wassing, because Renee's with him now. The thing with about Renee is Renee is kind of, he doesn't say much about much. I don't think he cares about much. All this time that 
you know, Michael does these things. Renee's not really saying to him, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. Yeah, this is overloaded. He says nothing. It's dangerous. I don't think he cared. This place is cursed. Yeah, this place is cursed. Have a smoke and friggin' go about doing whatever you're doing. Yeah. Simon and Leo tell Michael and Wassing that they can't cross the river and that they should go up the river for a bit, cross the river where it's a little bit calmer, and then come back down out to sea and then continue up the coastline. As they're trying to go upstream, though, the weight of the boat is causing a problem. And as they are sitting so low in the water already, it didn't take much for the water to overcome the vessel. Yeah. So Wassing, Renee Wassing says, a wave came over the stern and side of the boat, stopping the engine and swamping the hulls. We sank visibly and the current continued to push out to sea. Simon and Leo say jump and swim for shore because it's not very far. However, Wassing can't swim. What are you doing? In- <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, you know how it goes. Yeah. There's no life preservers either. I, I was going to say, I've you seen know that. Those, those canoes that they had, too. They're pretty low in oh my the water, God. man. Like, low in the water is an understatement. Like it's a tree, for fuck's sake. Yeah, just sitting. It's on, not like you carved a sequoia, no. a giant sequoia. You carved, like, you know. Yeah. You could, the water would have just, in, if they were in the open ocean, it's just, yeah. it just would have just taken them over, man. Wasing can't swim, so Michael, who apparently, by all accounts, is a very strong, uh, good very swimmer. good swimmer, yeah. decides that he'll stay with Wasing, and Simon and Leah will swim for shore and go and get help. As the vessel gets pushed further out, it capsizes. Michael and Wasing are forced to just hold on to the now makeshift kind of raft and wait for rescue. The the current from the river is pushing them further out into the into the sea, and they're just kind of basically clinging to the ca- capsized. Capsized canoe, or yeah. whatever the hell it is. Catamaran. Well, yeah. <laughs> Michael and Wassing spend the night floating with the current. In the morning, Michael decides that he should try to reach shore. By now, it's estimated that the boat is 19 kilometers from shore. Mm, fuck yeah. Michael ties two gasoline containers, so jerry cans, to himself for extra buoyancy. Ties his glasses to his head with some string. I don't know where from, but he ties his glasses yeah. to his head because I think yeah. he really needed those things. Yeah. And embarks on his swim. Like, I think he probably was blind without his glasses. But yeah. he decides he can swim it. Wassing said he tried. For the first time, Wassing is going to speak up about some things. Yeah. He tried to talk him out of it. This is what he says. Quotes. I tried very hard to talk that plan out of his head. He listened to me, but I knew in advance that he would go ahead. It was always very difficult to make him change his mind. He was a brave man, but also very unreasonable. <laughs> So Michael told Wassing, I think I can make it. And as far as anyone knows, those are his last words, officially. Yeah. A guy goes on a... I know. Can't swim, but you're going to travel around in the sea probably with no life A Tom Sawyer raft, and he can't swim. (laughs) Tom Sawyer. You know, like, come on. It probably pretty much was like that. Yeah. Well, it's not smart. But that's how they did things back in the 60s. I guess, you know, they feel they're invincible. Yeah. What Michael and Wassing didn't know is that Simon and Leo had made it to shore after a five-hour-long swim. Fuck. That's a five long hours long of fighting the current Currents, yeah. to get to shore. And they didn't have any jerry cans. No, they didn't have any jerry cans. Yeah. They ran to the closest village, <clears throat> what was some 11 miles away. Holy fuck. So it's take a whole damn day. Yeah, yeah. So the search begins. Dutch patrol boats. Yeah. They start running up and down the coast. Eventually, naval vessels and helicopters will join the search. 
Several days went by before Dutch accepted help from the Americans and the Australians. Approximately 500, sorry, 5,000 coastal tribespeople participated in the search as well, motivated by the offer of large quantities of tobacco as offered by Michael's father. That's crazy, tobacco. Mm -hmm. Here's the kicker. All of those things are happening. Mm. All of those people are searching for these two guys. Right. Wasson gets picked up the next day. Yeah, and the fucker that can't swim, he gets gets saved. Yeah. Wow. Michael, never seen again. Yeah. Or. Or. Was he? Or was he, exactly. Yes. Here's what is weird about this story. So you know now kind of mentally where this guy is Mm -hmm. with regards to New Guinea, how he feels about the culture there, how he feels about the people there, how he feels about the environment there, and what he's doing there, what his purpose was. Yeah, he loved it. Now we're going to get into where'd he go. About a week after Michael disappeared, an Australian newspaper posted the headline, Rockefeller may be captive in Dutch New Guinea jungle. A week after. A week after. According to the article, a Dutch officer who knew the area and its inhabitants well figured Michael would have made it to shore, that he wouldn't have been eaten by any of the sharks, crocodiles, or other predators in the waters, Hmm. nor would he have been eaten by any of the natives. Others agree. The idea that they would eat a white man was preposterous. As outlined in the article, there were people who had had a very defined, if not refined, belief associated with death and spirits, and no one in these coastal villages had ever eaten a white man, and doing so now could have very serious, if not dire, consequences on them. The natives believed it would bring them great ills and misfortune. The story progresses to, he's gone... Then it was he drowned at sea. Then it was he was captured and eaten by natives. It was stated that the missionaries and anthropologists could move around the region unarmed because the Asmat believed that so deeply. That whole, if you kill and eat a white guy, you're fucked. So we're not touching you guys. Taboo. Yeah. We're not touching you guys at all. The Dutch officer suggested instead that if he was found by a tribe, they would hide him for fear of being punished if Dutch authorities found that they had him. I don't got him. Yeah. You got him? No. I don't got him. I don't got him. I don't know where he is. I don't know where he is. I don't think anybody got him. He's dead, man. Yeah. So we also have to remember, Michael's rich. Yeah. And the tribespeople, I'm pretty sure, knew this. Because he's the guy coming with all the fancy shit to barter for their art. Yeah. If they had seen him with his knives and his hatchets and his tobacco and whatever else he was bartering with, maybe they would think to themselves, maybe we should keep this guy. Yeah. Get some more free shit. Yeah, bartering chip. Yeah, absolutely it is. Others, though, suggest that the people of Otsjanep killed him and ate him. Here's where this is a bit weird. So here's the story. The people of Otsjanep, they say, killed and ate him as retribution for the killing of four of their tribesmen in an incident with Dutch officials in 1958. 1958. They've gone missing in 1962. Or sorry, he's gone missing in 1962. 61? 62. 61. Sorry. In the encounter, the Dutch officials fired upon the tribesmen of Otsjanep after they thought the Otsjanep people had shot at them. In reality, the Otsjanep people only pretended to have guns to scare potential attackers away. This killing of four of their members, according to their beliefs, should be avenged, rather, must be avenged. And the killing of a white man would be enough to avenge their deceased. For the Asmat peoples, there's no such thing as natural death, only evil spirits and enemies. Yeah. yeah. 
the fish poles that Michael was bartering for are pledges to their death that their spirits will be revenged. So it's serious. Revenging yeah. and avenging your your ancestors' death is a big deal. Thing is, this way of thinking was waning significantly. Mm. This whole like kill people and eat people thing. Yeah. That that was kinda that was at the time even getting to be a little old school. Yeah. The first colonial post was established in Asmat Agates in 1938, and it was closed in 1942 due to the World War II, but was re-established in 1953 by a Dutch missionary, which would go on to become the base for the Roman Catholic missionaries in the region. Once this outpost was established, so began the increased interaction with the Asmat people. The Catholic missionaries, quite a few of whom had degrees in anthropology, were having some success in persuading the Asmat to stop their rituals in cannibalism and headhunting. They encouraged the tribes people to continue their other important cultural cycles and festivals, and these were incorporated and adapted into other Catholic lit uh, litur liturgy. Yeah. I'll get the word. White men in the region is not unusual, and the headhunting and cannibalism is a fading ritual. Yeah. Not to yeah. suggest that it was eradicated, but it definitely was not as prevalent. I don't think it was. I really don't. No, like it was At that time, I, I just don't... I just don't get the vibe that that was, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. was happening. So you know? the idea that these Otsjinet people got them and ate them seems almost yeah. absurd. Doesn't make sense. And I had read other things in their journals, or sorry, his journal, about the Otsjinet people being pretty afraid of people coming to get them. Yeah. And yeah. being attacked. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So they didn't come across as super badasses to me. They came across as kind of fearful. Yeah, yeah, they did. They so did. according to Dutch reports, Michael drowned at sea. Yeah. They did recover one jerry can offshore, Which but that was it. Doesn't mean anything. Could have been he got there and he took it off. Could have. Like, where would he go? What are you going to hold on to it for? Yeah, exactly. According to journalist Carl Hoffman, he investigated the case and wrote a book about it. I think it's called Something Harvest. I can't remember. Hmm. I can't remember. Yeah. Something Harvest. Anyway. Michael was found by, the, this is according to him, Michael was found by the Oats Jeanette uh, tribes people, killed and avenged for their ancestors yeah. from that Dutch thing in 1958. <laughs> the, yeah. They the, don't hold a grudge, eh? Yeah. <laughs> the book outlines that a particularly vengeful Oats Jeanette chief named Ajem killed him. Hoffman's finding tell of Michael almost reaching the shore, but is spotted by a gathering of men in eight canoes nestled in the trees along the shore. It is said that they at first thought it was a crocodile until he <laughs> rolled over onto his stomach, and then they recognized him as having been at the village before. Mm -hmm. So before we go any further, we're supposed to believe that these tribesmen saw a pale, skinny dude in the water with two <laughs> jerry cans. So you know those are red or something, right? Like they're pretty obvious what they are. Yeah strapped to him and they're like that's a crocodile yeah. that sounds like complete bullshit yeah it does sound like you thought he was a crocodile like they don't know what a crocodile is yeah Come so on, the, even that part of the story sounds fucking ludicrous yeah. anyway so yeah. they paddle out to him and surround him one of the men is encouraged by Ajam to spear Michael kill him yeah so he does <laughs> yeah so he does this is the thing that's kind of weird to me this Ajum is supposed to be fearless and violent and wants to avenge his ancestors, yet he doesn't choose to kill this guy himself? Yeah. Isn't that a bit strange? Yeah. Like, I think that's weird. Yeah, it is. Usually weird. the guys who want to, like, be the bigwigs, they're the ones doing the stabby stabs. Now he's the chief. Yeah. 
But if you're this fearless dude and, you know, avenge and revenge yeah. and you don't do it, you're like, hey, you want to stick that guy? Uh, get that guy over there. Yeah, I feel it's like it like, right now. My yeah. arm's a little sore. Oh, I got a bad <laughs> shoulder. I was wondering if you could just spear that kid in the water. It yeah. looks like a crocodile. <laughs> yeah. So they spear him while he's in the water and then drag him into the canoe and then take him back to shore. Yeah. Two members of the tribe, along with Ajim, hold Michael, pushing his head forward, and with a blow of an axe at the back of his neck, they kill him. Ajim cut into his throat and then presses his head back until his spine snaps. Sounds great. It's very, very descriptive. Yeah, it is. That's, it's, uh, Jesus, that's, yeah. that's so something. They proceeded on, on shore to butcher and eat him. Yeah. It's reported that his ribs were broken with an axe, his sternum was ripped out, his arms and legs cut off, and his entrails pulled out. He was scalped, and a small hole about two inches in diameter was cut into his skull so that they could shake out his brains onto a palm leaf, mix it with sago, and roast it on a fire. What's with the brains all the time? I have no fucking idea. We talked about this. Don't ever eat brains. Don't eat brains. It'll make you a wendigo. It will make you a wendigo, exactly. I can understand that Ajum would want to avenge his ancestors. However, I find it odd that he would wait almost four years to do it. Yeah. When there was plenty of other opportunities to kill a white dude. Oh, yeah. yeah. This kind of delay, let's say, in uh, revenge can't look good. <laughs> revenge kill? Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe tomorrow I'll kill a white guy. Yeah. For like four years? Yeah. I don't, don't you think it would have been handled like pretty soon after that 1958 altercation? Yeah. yeah. Nothing happened, so why do it now? Yeah, I agree. I guess you could think to yourself, okay, well, he's easy pickings, but, you know, people were left there. He was left there with other people. Uh, That's just fishy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You can't, you can't tell me that Michael floating around in the, in the water is the easiest target they've seen in four years. There was no no other opportunities. I don't think so. Like I said, he was in Ojtjeneb, and the other people, Hamadasep people, they left him there. Yeah. Could have ate him then. Who the fuck's going to know? Yeah, I, I I, don't think they did anything. I, I, no. I really, I really don't. Mm-hmm. I think they knew who he was, too, and like word travels, you know, people talk, right? Well, he's, the guy, he's the guy with jungle. the money. Yeah, they're t- probably talking about these these guys coming around. Yeah, he's the guy with the money. He's the guy you can get some knives and hatchets Tobacco from. Tobacco and whatever from. Yeah, instead right? of bamboo knives, you can get an actual knife. An actual knife, yeah. It seems very sensational. Probably sells a lot of books. But there's yeah. other possibilities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. He was ripped apart and eaten. And trails were thrown out. Uh, and his brains were cooked in so the leaves. You mean and, to tell yeah. me, though, that the helicopters and all that shit flying around didn't see any funny business on a beach anywhere? Yeah, no remains or nothing. Yeah. Even it happening at the time, you don't know when he was actually picked up. They yeah. were searching for him for like weeks. Anyway, fast forward to 1969 yeah. and to a man named Milt Macklin. He's a journalist in New York, and he says an Australian smuggler named Donahue visits Macklin in his office. He says that he has seen and spoke to Michael on an island called Kanapu about 10 weeks earlier. So I think he spoke to him in like September or something like that. I couldn't find a specific date. Donahue says that Ma- uh, Michael was looking pretty ragged, mm. squinting and limping around on an injured knee. Apparently he said to Donahue, I'm Michael Rockefeller, can you help me? Donahue says there were two other witnesses. He gives Macklin the coordinates of the island, which I looked up, and it's basically a speck 
It's literally a speck. Yeah. Like you have to zoom in before it actually turns into anything. Yeah, if you saw it at all. Yeah. yeah. So he gives him the coordinates, but now you're asking yourself, well, why doesn't Donahue just rescue him? So according to Macklin, Donahue and his smuggler buddies were on the run because they had killed, I think, three Dutch people. They had an altercation with some Dutch authorities, and they had killed three Dutch people, so they didn't want a gimpy kid with them. Yeah, the only killing going on is between the white people. None of the tribes no. killed anybody. Including, well, they probably just, killed other tribe people, but the yeah. white people are killing the white people, it seems. Uh, it just doesn't make sense, even mm-hmm. that. Like you said, why wouldn't they, you know, take them with them? There's just, well, that's what's, what's fishy just about this stupid. story, right? Yeah. You have this guy saying he saw him 10 weeks earlier, and it's 1969. Mm-hmm. Michael's been missing since 61. He was declared dead in 62. Okay. So... Eight years later, you see him on an island? Yeah. And you leave, him, you leave him there? The thing is, this island is in the Trobriand area, which is on the other side of New Guinea. Right. Like, it's like a thousand miles away. Yeah, yeah. How the fuck you'd get there, I have no idea. No idea. I even looked at currents, like a map of currents, to see if a current could take <laughs> him that far. Seriously, because, I mean, I don't understand all how to read current maps, really, but I was yeah. like... How the fuck could he get that far? Yeah. Maybe he's like castaway. Yeah, and you can't walk. It's not like walking. Not the terrain, the water no, and no. mud. Definitely and not. Shit all over. So Macklin said that uh, they didn't want to travel with him because he was kind of gimpy. And they decided that, or sorry, they promised him that they would send, they would tell somebody and send for help. Yeah. So Donahue yeah, okay. talked to Macklin because he had seen that he had written an article about Rockefeller. So he figured he's the best guy to, to tell. Because you can't tell authorities because you're going to get arrested. See, here's the thing, Buns. Mm-hmm. Now, if I was Rockefeller, mm-hmm. I would say, I don't give a fuck what you're doing. I'm going with you. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe he could. Well, you're going to fight three people? Well, what? Could have offered them a lot of money. Exactly. Or, or I'll make it worth your while. A pardon but I'm from, your, with from you. your charges yeah, or something. I'll make sure you guys are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no way. <laughs> I know. But Macklin says that Donahue never asked for any money yeah. or anything. Like, he never asked for anything for giving this information. So it would seem as though that if you're not asking for anything or looking for anything in return for the information, that maybe it's true. As as bizarre as it is, maybe it's true. Yeah. Something don't so, add up anyway. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So Macklin decides that it could be a lie, but... What if it isn't? What if it isn't? Okay, mm. yeah. So he embarks on a journey to Kanapu. Okay. Once he gets there, they find a hut on the island. No people. During his investigation, during Macklin's investigation, the same story is being peddled. Michael was killed and eaten. Eaten, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A Dutch missionary named Cornelius or Cornelis, Cornelis Van Kessel confirms it to Macklin and so ends Macklin's search. He basically just like, well, this guy says he was killed and eaten and he seems believable, so I guess I'm done. Yeah. But this isn't the only time that someone has reported seeing Michael. An Australian trader named Roy Hogan claimed that he had seen Michael Rockefeller in the Azmat about eight years after he went missing. Hogan claims that he and his two-man crew were taking a break on the bank of the Utah, I think you say Utah River. All of a sudden... A large group of tribesmen come up on them. The tribesmen were startled to see Hogan and his guys sitting there, and Hogan and his guys were startled to see the tribesmen. 
Hogan says that they all kind of looked at each other for a few seconds and then the tribesmen turned to walk away. Hogan said among the tribesmen was a tall, bearded white man wearing glasses. Yeah. So Michael was about six feet tall. I assume probably taller than the tribes people. Yeah. And definitely wearing glasses. Um, Hogan tried to follow them, but they became hostile towards him. So they backed off. Mm. White guy's going to stick out like... (sighs) Like it's nobody's business. it's nobody's business. Hogan says that he only realized it was Michael way later after seeing his picture in the papers. Mm. So he was probably just like, what the fuck is this white dude doing? And then thought nothing of it until he he seen it in some newspapers. It's like, hey, that's that's, uh, blah, blah, blah there. Mm -hmm. So for the record, we have Michael drowning at sea. Yeah. We have... Picked up by members of Otsjenep, killed and eaten. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, though, the story, the Otsjenep story, right? They say that they have his glasses, like they kept his glasses, but nobody's ever seen them. Yeah. And then, and then we have that he was spotted in the Azmat region with some tribesmen, and that uh, he was on an island from like 900 miles away from where he went missing. Yeah. So we have Hogan's story, we have Donahue's story. We have the story being peddled about him, killed and eaten, and then we have he was drowned. Yeah. But none of those things have conclusive proof. Yeah. Yeah, the one about 900 miles away is... Uh, well, fuck, who knows? Yeah. Maybe he went there himself. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. During Macklin's investigation in New Guinea, while he was looking for Michael, he was taking film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He never did anything with the film. So no one ever looked at it, no one ever edited it, no one did anything with the fucking film. However, filmmakers, Fraser Heston, Heather McAdams, and Alex Butler were interested. Heston and Butler, having read about Macklin's New Guinea adventure in his book, The Search for Michael Rockefeller, started investigating because in the book, in the first chapter, Macklin has mentioned that he was taking film. Right. So they set out to find Macklin's footage. They spoke with his widow. She didn't have it. It was given to a stock footage house. They spoke with the footage house, and they didn't have it. <coughs> Excuse me. But they knew who did, and it was in storage in Vermont. The <laughs> filmmakers get the film sent to them. They receive 15 reels of 16-millimeter film. Yeah. Scenes recorded out of sequence, missing sound for the most part. Yeah. However, while going through the film, one shot in particular gets their attention. It's a short snippet. And it shows a grand canoe armada moving down the river. It doesn't say what river. They didn't say what river, so I don't think anybody really knows. The cinematographer takes footage of the group of upwards of 800, maybe 1,000 tribesmen. That's a lot of people. That's a lot, man. A lot of people as they, as they paddle people. by. So they basically just kind of paddle by the guy as he's filming. They're chanting, shaking spears, shooting arrows, all that kind of business. Thing is, in the middle of all of this... Yeah. Is a white guy. It's crazy when you see that footage. It's just... There's a white guy in the middle of all of it. Of all of it. He's... Just... Yeah. <laughs> it sticks out like Well, he's very pale. Him. He's a very pale, very naked white guy. Yeah. Well, pale compared to them. Because they have very... Asmat people have very dark skin. Yeah. So he may have been tan, but he still looks white as a ghost compared to them. Yeah, absolutely, man. He's got some feathers on, like the other Asmat people do. He's standing and paddling in the canoe, like all the rest of them do. He's most definitely (laughs) white. Yeah. He's got a beard, which is weird, because the Asmat people don't have beards. They They don't wear beards, but this white dude's wearing a beard. Now, the shot is far away, and when you blow it up, the tiny frame, it's it's pretty 
it's pretty pixelated and it's for like a split second. So it's kind of hard to tell whether it actually is him or not. The, <laughs> yeah. the body build is very similar. Yeah, man. The beard is similar. The jawline looks similar, but it's just too grainy to have. He had glasses on too, didn't he? It looks like looks there like might be something on there. On. Yeah. It looks like something might be on there. I can't quite tell. It's difficult to tell. Yeah. Right? Let's see. Can I open it? Yeah. So. Like goggles almost, but. Well, I don't know if that's the headdress or what. Yeah. Like when you look at it, the body, it's similar. It's very similar. The beard is kind of the same as this picture, this side-by-side shot. Yeah. But you can't quite tell because it's so grainy. I don't know. I think it's him, man. It could be. It very well could be. You know, aged, obviously. Mm Mm-hmm. And it looks like the hairline and everything would be about the same for his age. It could be, maybe. He's a little more muscular, obviously, but Well, if he's he's been paddling canoes with these guys and running through the forest, yeah, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. This is the weird part. No one noticed yeah, how would you not see that? No one, while filming or afterward, noticed there was a white dude amongst them all. Yeah, unless, like I said, an armada of a thousand. Yeah, so basically yeah, Macklin's down there. there looking for this guy, and this guy could have paddled right by his face. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, who else is the white dude? Anyway, Heston's documentary, The Search for Michael Rockefeller, was released in 2011, which means this footage was probably found in the late 2000s. So it was taken in 69 and then found in the late 2000s. So what are the chances that Michael survived? It's possible. I I I mean, Simon and Leo, they made the swim. They did, yeah. If he did, though, would he just voluntarily meld into the jungle life that he he had been admiring? Was this an opportunity for him to escape his family name and heritage? Or is he a captive that they decided to keep? Yeah, who knows, man. I think he stayed. I think he stayed. Yeah? Yeah. So I I read in that journal, it's an excerpt from the book, The Asthmat of New Guinea, The Journal of Michael Rockefeller by Adrian Gerbrands. So that's the doctor guy, that the anthropologist that he was traveling with. In this book, it says, when visitors from other villages are adopted into the U community, the women form a long row standing one behind the other, their legs widespread. The newcomers must pass under the row of women who moan as if in childbirth, In this manner, the women give birth, Mm quote-unquote, to the new members of the community. This would seem to me that they are welcoming of others from other tribes. Perhaps the same goes for white men from the white men's tribe. Maybe not, but maybe. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think so. I think it's really possible, man. Mm -hmm. So there's this show from the 70s called In Search Of. I remember that show. You do? Yeah, I do. I do. I, <laughs> I never to, saw it. I, I watched it every once in a while. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. narrated by Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy, yeah. 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 So they, <laughs> <laughs> they did an episode about Michael Rockefeller in 1977-78. That's when it aired. And it showed an interview with, at that time, I guess, the Oats Genep chief. So that's, that's the people that they said ate him. Yeah. He said the following about the search for Michael. So this is what the chief said. There were many airplanes and boats. We were afraid and blocked our river with trees. Our enemies in the other villages all say that we killed him. They want us to get into trouble. I am the chief. If we killed him, I would know. Yeah, I, I believe I believe in what he's saying. Yeah. There. Absolutely. It's he his job know. to know. You don't keep anything from yeah. the chief. Well, they come they tell him. Yeah. You know, he would know. Yeah. 
So these people from Otsjenep were the same people who didn't want to leave their wives alone in the upper village when Michael had visited previously because they feared attack from the Omadesep people that had brought Michael and his colleagues to their village. Yeah. Michael wrote about that in his journal, actually. Yeah. In fact, Michael had bartered for some artwork from the Otsjenep villagers, and they were supposed to meet at a rendezvous point to collect the works. The Otsjenep people didn't come. They weren't paid anything significant for their artwork up front that was to be settled later, like yeah. upon delivery. Yeah. But they didn't show the... Oh, that damn word again. Aman, hmm, Amanamki. Amanamki guides said that they probably <laughs> didn't come because they still feared the uh, Omadeset warriors would attack their village when they weren't there. Yeah. So these people don't sound like super fearless. They sound like they're afraid of fucking everything. Yeah, yeah they got fears. And I could see that they would be afraid of being in trouble. Yeah. So why take the chance yeah. of killing and eating a white dude yeah. and then have all of the authorities come down on your village? Especially if you saw the helicopters and, they, and everything. They're coming around. with guns, not yeah. spears. They're Looking. coming to take you out. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense to me that they would take that chance. Yeah, I, do. I agree with you. Here's some interesting stuff, too. Michael's father actively worked to prevent any further searches and investigations into Michael's disappearance. He considered the matter closed. However, after he died, his ex-wife, Mary, so Michael's mother, contacted an Australian private investigator to go to New Guinea and see if there was any truth to Michael being held captive. And this was in 1979. He's obviously close with his mother. Mm -hmm, I think so. Yeah. The investigator, Frank Monty, was paid $50,000 for the job. He ends up buying three skulls that were reportedly belonged to white guys mm-hmm. that they had killed and eaten. He brings them back <clears throat> to the States, turns them over to Mary, and then never hears from her again. So maybe she had them tested and one was Michael's. Could maybe have been a monkey, she, you know, or something, maybe something she, else. Maybe she had them tested and none of them belonged to Michael. Yeah. Now we have to think, even though the, the officials in the area tell us that these people are savages, we can also assume that they're not stupid. No. Of course they have Michael's skull to sell. They're getting a pretty penny for it. His skull would be worth a lot. Yeah. And it figures because Rockefeller's skull keeps turning up. Villagers offering to sell his skull to everybody for years afterwards. Maybe somebody has a skull, but like... I got a skull. You got a skull. He's got a skull. Everybody's got a skull. I don't think there's anyone has a skull. No, I don't think so either. I think his skull went in the ground with him Mm -hmm. when he when he actually died. Yeah. That died there, and they gave him a a proper burial and everything else, like they usually would anybody else in their tribe. Mm Mm-hmm. Michael Michael wrote home this one time. One of his letters. He wrote, "I'm having a thoroughly exhausting but most exciting time here." The Azmat is like a huge puzzle with the variations in ceremony and art style forming the pieces. My trips are enabling me to comprehend, if only in a superficial, rudimentary manner, the nature of this puzzle. Perhaps Michael did make it to shore, and perhaps he was held captive, perhaps he chose to stay, seeing his disappearance as an opportunity to escape the confines of his family heritage. That's a possibility. Perhaps he stayed with the asthmat for years and then later left, able to start a new life anywhere he could have pleased. Perhaps he never left and stayed with the community he had become fond of until he died, if he's even dead at all. Yeah. Because he may not be dead, but he's probably dead. One thing for sure that we have to think about is that that 1969 Macklin film is intriguing. Yeah. One white guy in a mass of 800, eight years after this one white guy went missing. I think the stories of Michael being cannibalized 
are great for the village. Yeah. White people will pay hefty for the stories, and the more disturbing, the better. Yeah, I believe. It's I a great agree. way to make money and go- get goods. Yeah. Like it really is. It is. Yeah, you want something? Yeah, I got a story. What are you going to give me? When you see that picture, it's... Fuck. I mean, it really, really... To me, I just said, that's him. That's him. It could be. There's, I don't know, it's hard to tell because it's so grainy, so you don't know precisely what you're looking at. Here's here's the other thing, too. They're not going to take any old white guy into the community and say, hey, we're going on a little armada here. Do you want to go on a ride with us? Yeah. Here, put these on and, and let's go. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. They're not going to do that. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. It's true. It's true. I think I think the stories of him being cannibalized and eaten go on because yeah. you can make money off of it. Yeah. It's weird that he wouldn't want to come back. But you know what? There's other reasons that he could not have come back. Yeah, there is. We don't know. No, that's true. Right. There could have been lots of reasons. Maybe this afforded him an opportunity to get away from the family name. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure that comes with that name. Yeah. Maybe there was something about the community that he felt a deeper connection to and wanted to stay. Maybe his family did know and just didn't want to have to deal with the backlash of him actually wanting to stay and just said, that's it. Let's not look into it any further. Yeah, leave him. That's what he wants to do. That's fine. That's what he wants to do. That's fine. Yeah, leave him there. Yeah, perhaps he had a deeper secret that he didn't want anyone to know about, so he stayed there. I think he did. Well, we talked about it. We talked about the possibility of him. Yeah, that he was gay. Maybe. At that time... At that time in history, it wasn't as common like now. Now, who cares, you know? Yeah. But back then, it's a big deal, man. Yeah. It was a big deal. Well, some of the pictures, he kind of seems that way. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. I don't want to say unequivocally a, uh, uh, that's yeah. true. However, same here. If we if we are to you know hypothesize about this, what do we know? Well, we know that in the tribes. There's a lot of sex going on. The The men have multiple wives. Yeah. Everybody's sleeping with everybody. And when I say everybody's sleeping with everybody, everybody's, everybody's sleeping, sleeping with everybody. everybody. Yeah. Men's are sleeping with men's. Yeah. Men's are sleeping with other men's women's. Yeah. And everybody is apparently blowing off the chief. Yeah. He's and not by, like, get out of here, chief. I'm talking blowing the chief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if... If this guy happened to be a little bit effeminate and possibly no, was, was gay, gay, and you go to a place like this where He's it's not going to be nobody judged. gives a shit, yeah, and you can judged. live free and live your life without being judged at all, yeah, yeah no family pressures. No. Maybe you would stay. Yeah, yeah. It's, Maybe your parents would say you should stay because we don't want to have to deal with the backlash of that yeah, in the '60s. Yeah. Because let's face it, people still hide even though they shouldn't have to, but people still hide. They do. So what if you see a community like this where it's fucking normal and it's the first chance that you get to be normal? Yeah, you can be yourself. Like your version of normal. Yeah, and nobody thinks... Twice. Twice about it. They don't even care. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody gives a damn. Yeah, could be. Could be. I mean, that's pretty out there, but what if if that's the reason why he's like, I want to stay? Yeah. Who knows? Maybe he just didn't want to be a part of that whole... The family and the, yeah, um, you know, I, like, I don't want to be in politics or in petroleum or fucking whatever. Well, you know, when you you really think about it, you're in those families, like you said, your life is laid out for you. 
Yeah, it's decided for you. You your, don't get your to decide. Your choices, yeah, are here's, here they are. This and is what perhaps, they are. Perhaps he didn't believe that there was a way out of it until they thought he was missing. Yeah. He was like, this is my chance. Yeah. I can get out of this. He might have want to come back. You well, know, maybe. I, well, like uh, I said, he could come back anytime he wants and just yeah. have a new life and nobody will know anything. Yeah, and he also could have paid people to just be don't quiet. tell anybody, be quiet. Well, his mother and his father divorced in 1962. And his mother cited that there was like extreme mental cruelty or something like that. Hmm. Perhaps he and his mother stayed in contact. We don't yeah. know that. Yeah. I mean, it seems kind of weird <clears throat> that she would send somebody to go and collect up some skulls. Maybe she hadn't heard from him in a while. It was 1979. She's wondering. Maybe he got well, killed in a raid or something. The skulls could have been a, a front. The guy could have come back with some letter or whatever, right? You know, like... Mm -hmm. I think the fact that that Macklin guy went there in 1969 and took a film where there's one white dude in yeah. there. It's a grainy film. You showed me that. I said, that's him, man. It looks like it could be, yeah. but we don't know that for sure. Don't know for sure, but... Just, but it's compelling. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely compelling. Definitely. It's definitely compelling. Yeah, yeah. So that's the story yeah. of Michael Clark Rockefeller. I don't think he was eaten by anybody. No. He didn't drown. No. No, I don't think he drowned. Maybe like, he didn't even make it to a village. That's possible. Maybe he just got lost and then died. Maybe he did get lost and end up on the other fucking side of the island yeah. in the Trobriands, completely 900 miles away from where he was supposed to be. I Honestly, I th I really feel like when I see his pictures and the way of the film, some of the film that we saw, mm -hmm. he was befriended by these people. They would be looking for him to help him. Yeah, you know what I, I think mean? so. And they took him in. You have 5,000 coastal villagers looking for him. Yeah, like I think they really liked him. It, there's just, there was a bond. Like, there you seemed can to be. See it, you there know? seemed to be. You can see it. You can almost feel it coming off of his pictures. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they took him in. I think yeah. they took him in. And that bond, it was something that he might not have had with his own family. No, probably not. And again, you know, who, who knows what some I was curious. I wanted that. to know what his sister thought, his twin sister. Twin sister, Because there's yeah. a deep bond there. He didn't hear I, nothing. You I couldn't find anything. anything. No, I couldn't find anything. I didn't I didn't look, like, yeah. deeply into it because well, I was looking for... Twins are usually, there's pretty good... That's what I'm saying. Yeah. How does she feel about it? Yeah. yeah At least that's connection. what I was thinking. So if you have a chance to check it out, check into the story. And if yeah. you get a chance online to look for the picture, I, I'm going to post it on uh, our Facebook page and take a look at it. Yeah. It's compelling. It's not evidence <clears throat> either way, to no. be honest with you. No, because but you don't know who this dude is. And it, like I said, it is kind of grainy. Get you thinking, man. Mm, it's always a possibility. Gonna, okay, even gonna... here's the next question. If it's not him, who the fuck is who it? Who is it then? I said, who is it then? <laughs> Why is there some random dude yeah. out there? A, white, a random white dude. One dude out of a thousand. Yeah. So who is it then? Yeah. He, did, he didn't show up for this, like, you know, yeah. tribesman experience. He obviously lives with them. Yeah. My cousin Vinny? <laughs> you know, he's different. <laughs> Maybe. I don't think so. Maybe. Yeah. So we'll put it up, so. take a look at it, see what you think. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. weird. It's a cool story. I mean, the guy was definitely an interesting dude. Well, he seemed to have a genuine passion for what he was doing. doing. Yeah, he did. And if he had a genuine passion for it, maybe it was so passionate that he thought... This is an opportunity for me to actually be this. Yeah. Money sometimes doesn't buy happiness. No, yeah? no, no. Sometimes it doesn't. And That's when you've had it your whole life and then you experience something like this, there's a, 
a certain you know returning to your to your, your core. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That affects people differently. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. I don't think anybody ate him. You know, and, and the other thing too, he, he might have thought, you know what, I'm staying. I can I can leave anytime. Yeah, exactly. You know, I can come I can go come and go anytime I want. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was held captive. No, I don't think he was held captive. You know? So for him, he's probably just well, I'm good. Mm-hmm. If I don't like it, I'll just go. Yeah. Yeah. He might have left. You're rich. Nobody knows. You know? Maybe he did leave. Like serious, serious wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Just, just go back. Maybe that's why Dad said no more searches. Yeah, when he wants to, if he wants to come home, he'll come home. Maybe he stayed in contact with Dad and not Mom. Yeah. No more searches. Yeah. No more investigations. He's tight with his It's father. done. Yeah, yeah, it's done. That's yeah. pretty convenient. Yeah. If you don't want anyone to find your kid. Yeah, I, I, I honestly think that I really do. It's quite possible. You're that loaded that you could just come. You can go. Yeah. Why not? Lots of people fake their deaths. Yeah. Look at Elvis. <laughs> Kidding. That's I'm kidding. It. Anyway, that's the story of Mark, uh, Mark, Michael Clark Michael Rockefeller. Clark Rockefeller. Yeah. yeah. Interesting guy. Yeah. Oh, interesting. If guy. you if you're interested in it, there's there's some there's some stories out there for sure. Mm-hmm. His journal is kind of intriguing. It's online. Take a look at that and it's, see it's his well pictures written. and stuff, and just kind of yeah. yeah, vibe it out. Yeah. What do you feel like when you see him there with all the tribes people around, and he's looking at artworks like shields and stuff like that and deciding which ones he's going to buy. I mean, I don't know. No, yeah. Doesn't, doesn't, none of it has the vibe like imminent danger. You're going to get fucking roasted on a fire anytime soon. Yeah, there's nothing like that. Not at all. And I find it hard to believe that uh, a chief would wait four years to avenge his ancestors. I I would think that their belief would be the ancestors would be pretty pissed off that it took so long. Yeah, you took this long? What the? Yeah. (laughs) Well, because I figure like, you know, now they're restless, right? Yeah. They didn't take care of anything. Now they're restless. They're not not in peace. Anyway. Anyway. That be the story. That be the story. Hope you enjoyed it. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Anyway, thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Of course, we appreciate your support. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. For watching now, too. Yeah. Yeah. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe so that you get new episodes every two weeks when they come up. If you're listening on Spotify, Google, Apple, TuneIn, Podcast, whatever systems, (laughs) because there's a bunch out there, subscribe on those as well, and you'll get new episodes every two weeks. Yeah. Like I said, thank you for your support. If you want to contact us, you can contact us at thetrianguluminpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I will try to get back to you mm-hmm. as uh, quickly as I can. And you can follow us on Facebook. Yep. As we as we grow our little community, we are thankful for all of you who are participating in that growth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can't do it without you. Yeah. So far, so good. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with the progress so far. Mm-hmm. Welcome to all the new listeners overseas and uh, this side of the hemisphere. Because <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of new peeps all over. Yeah. And we appreciate that uh, you're taking the time to give us a chance. Mm-hmm. So we thank you for that. And we look forward to talking to you in another couple weeks. So enjoy your day, evening, night, whatever it may be. And we'll see you soon. Be good to each other. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>